T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The news is hard to escape. Nine months into this coronavirus pandemic and... The numbers in the U.S. are stunning. Over the last week, a new case of coronavirus was reported every 1.2 seconds. Our numbers here in the New York Tri-State have been spiking for more than a month now. Mayor de Blasio sounding the alarm as coronavirus cases tick higher in the city. This week on 880 In-Depth, how ready are we to handle this surge? We are seeing a gradual increase in the number of COVID-19 patients we are seeing, both as outpatients and as inpatients. We check in with those on the front line of the healthcare pandemic to hear what they're seeing today and to hear about what they think tomorrow will bring. Part of my issue is that people talk about everybody getting fatigued. People automatically think they're getting fatigued. If we talk about it less, we won't get fatigued. Deal with it. This is, it's not going away by sitting around saying, I'm tired. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and COVID concerns are rising all over our area. Super spreader events on Long Island, rising positivity numbers in New Jersey, Connecticut, and here in New York City. Westchester mandating the wearing of masks in all schools. These are the days experts have been warning us about. Here's New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy. The second wave of the coronavirus is no longer something off in the future. It is coming, and it is coming now. In the minutes ahead, you'll hear some strong comments from Michael Dowling. He's the president and CEO of Northwell Health. He runs New York's largest health care system and tells our Peter Haskell this is no time to let your guard down. So when people talk about um, people getting tired and fatigued, I think we just got to buckle up, tighten the seatbelts, And know that when you're in a pandemic like this, it doesn't come for five or six months and go away. It lasts for a year or two. More from Michael Dowling ahead. But first, we wanted to also check in with one of the community hospitals, especially hard hit in those early days of the pandemic. We went back to Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey, in Bergen County. Our Peter Haskell spent time on the phone with Holy Name's chief medical officer, Dr. Adam Jarrett. We are seeing a gradual increase in the number of COVID-19 patients we are seeing, both as outpatients and as inpatients. In the last week or so, our volume of patients has gone from in the single digits to uh, right now we actually have 17 patients here. Um, We had five admissions overnight, which was significant for us. That was the largest bump we've had uh, in quite some time. 
we are um, cautiously optimistic that we're not going to see the exponential growth that we saw in March, but we just don't know. So back in March, every day or two, we would see a doubling of the number of patients for a good several weeks. Now we're seeing a slight increase, and then it levels off, and then we're seeing another slight increase, and it's leveling off. So we're not having the same rapid growth, but we're definitely seeing more patients, um, and um, we're prepared for that. We are in a much better position than we were back in March. We have dedicated space in the hospital just for our COVID patients. These are wards that we built in preparation for COVID patients that have negative pressure, that have dedicated staff, that have adequate PPE. We currently have adequate testing supplies, uh, and I'm optimistic about that. I am concerned that if we have the kind of spike we had back in March, testing could become a problem again, but right now we're in a better position. And I'm always concerned about having adequate staff, uh, but right now we're in a, a very good place for that if we start to see the kind of exponential growth that we saw back in March. But right now we're not seeing that. That doesn't mean we're not seeing more cases than we were seeing a month ago, but it's a slight increase and then a level, leveling off and then another slight increase and a leveling off. But there is a possibility that at any time we could see those cases really take off. Why are you concerned about the potential for adequate staffing? Staffing is the, is the largest challenge. So we can, we can get more PPE. It's not always easy, but in the first wave, we got support from the government uh, stockpile. In the first wave, our um, materials people were able to do whatever they could do to get us more supplies. And we've been stockpiling them uh, since April, May, when things began to, to quiet down a little bit after that first wave. So we're in a much better position as it relates to um, supplies. Staff is more challenging, right? They're, they're, you can't just go out and get a critically care-trained nurse or get a critically care-trained doctor. There just is a limited supply of those people, and they're crucial in terms of taking care of this very potentially very sick population. So we did bring some people in in the first wave, and we stayed in touch with them, and, and we're optimistic that if we need their help, they could come back again. But we just can't make people appear. Uh, it is much more challenging than being able to get adequate numbers of PPE. Now, we're much better prepared. Uh, our staff sort of figured out how to do this back in March and April, and we paired up staff so they could take care of a larger number of patients, and the units we created were created in a way that it's more efficient for staff to take care of patients. But I, I am concerned about my staff. Although we know we can keep them safe now with appropriate PPE, it still is emotionally very draining and challenging to take care of a very sick population of patients like this. You talk about having dedicated spaces for COVID patients. In the spring, you had to ramp up, you had to add spaces. What did you learn from that? And if you need to add space, how quickly could you do that now? So we did some remarkable things back in March and April. We added well over 100 beds that could be used as critical care beds if we needed them. We built out spaces all having negative pressure, which we think is a key component to taking care of COVID-19 patients. And we created spaces that kept much of the equipment outside of the patient care areas so staff 
could adjust ventilators, could adjust IV uh, rates without having to go in the room. That saved time for our staff, which was important because of the large number of patients we were taking care of, and it also saved PPE. So we, we learned a lot in the first wave and created tremendous uh, numbers of, of space that were able to keep us ahead of that first wave. We are cautiously optimistic that that space that we've built out will adequately meet our needs this time because we now have well over 100 critical care beds that we uh, have kept in place, and we have the ability to uh, convert some of our medical surgical beds quite simply back to COVID beds without much work. So it would, it would have to be an overwhelming number of patients before, from a bed capacity, we got overwhelmed this time. But if it did, we would build out more space. We have other places in the hospital that we could build out space if we needed to. But my biggest concern is not that space. It's staff, testing, PPE, and of those three things, we're in pretty good position with PPE and testing. It's the staff that concerns me the most in terms of having adequate volume, adequate quantities of staff. In terms of the PPE, how much of a supply do you have? Uh, my uh, materials people tell me that we have a large enough supply that even if the second wave is significantly larger than the first wave and the way we have come up with our staff using PPE, then we were, we're going to be okay. We have a large stockpile of masks. We have switched to gowns that are laundered, and we have a system in place where we launder a large quantity of gowns every single night and have them available the next morning. We have a large quantity of gloves. We have a large quantity of goggles. So we are prepared, even if the second wave is significantly larger than the first wave. I want to ask you about COVID deaths in the spring. Obviously, there was this devastating loss of human life. It seems we're not seeing that on the same scale now. Is it because the virus has changed in some way or is it just that we've learned how to treat it better? Well, that's a good question, and I don't think we know the answer for sure. We do not know for sure that the virus changed in a way to make it less lethal. It, it is a possibility, but I've yet to see any scientific proof that that's the case, but that is a possibility. The other issue is, to be very frank, this disease had a significant impact in northern New Jersey and, and the New York City area, and unfortunately, it was already deadly in much of our vulnerable population. So although we are still going to see many patients get sick and some patients, uh, unfortunately, die from this disease, we've already done much of the damage. That doesn't mean that we can go back to any kind of normal life and not be concerned about this disease, but I wouldn't be surprised if the mortality rate is decreased just because we've already seen an awful lot of mortality from this disease. And then I think the other key component is, yes, we are better at treating it. We are not so much better that this is not still a potentially very lethal disease, but we now have some very uh, proven medications that we know are not cures, but we know that if given at the right time, can significantly improve a patient's prognosis. Those, the two drugs that we know for sure do that are remdesivir and dexamethasone. But their impact is still relatively small, 
And so we rely on many of the other things that we learned from the first wave. And it's sometimes things that are simple as really good nursing care and exactly how to manage patients before they go on a ventilator to make sure their oxygen levels stay good and to know how to manage them after they're on a ventilator to make sure their oxygen level stays good. And then we have other medications that don't have scientifically proven benefits yet, but our gut from the large first wave is that these medicines likely do help, and so we are using them, but we are still waiting for the science to prove that. And those are medicines like interleukin-6 blocking drugs. Those are medicines like placental stem cells. Um, and so we are still using those drugs when appropriate, but we know we're doing it without the scientific evidence that we would like to have, but we're using it in patients that we know we think it, it may benefit them. We're seeing the virus rampaging through the Midwest and the upper Midwest. Is there something they don't know that you do, or is it just human behavior there versus here? I think that uh, New York and New Jersey and Connecticut really understood the importance of social distancing and mask wearing. I rarely uh, see people not following those rules in the Northeast, and I, and I think that was key in getting us off that first wave. The rest of the country, I don't know. I don't live there but I'm a little bit concerned that they don't understand how important those things are. And it is not surprising that we're beginning to see more cases in the Northeast. In fact, it's exactly what the experts knew would happen because mask wearing and social distancing helps, but it's not foolproof. And as the weather gets cold, as we go back to school, and as we begin to open up society a bit, we knew we were going to see more cases because social distancing and mask wearing is not foolproof. What I am cautiously optimistic about is because we are, we, because we are doing better with social distancing and mask wearing early on in this potential second wave as compared to March and April, that the size of the wave may not be as large. I don't know whether that's going to pan out. I know that there are going to be some challenges with that related to cold weather and trying to get back to some normalcy in society, but I, I am cautiously optimistic that if we do that in the Northeast and the rest of the country does that as well, we can't stop this virus, but we can lower the impact until we get to a vaccine, which also will not be a magic bullet, but can get us out of this pandemic phase that we're in now. We are nowhere near the numbers we saw in the state earlier this year. The daily number of COVID hospitalizations in New Jersey has now topped the 1,000 mark for the first time since July. For some perspective, during the worst of the pandemic in April, we saw eight times that number. But Dr. Jared still warns people should not grow tired of mask wearing and social distancing or that number is surely going to get worse. What do you tell people who are just tired of these restrictions? So uh, the first thing I tell them is that mask wearing and social distancing is the really only proven 
therapy, because I'll, I'll say it's a form of therapy, that we know absolutely saves lives. We know that for sure. And so it, it is burdensome, um, but wearing a mask helps your friends and neighbors and your family. It helps you as well, but it also helps the people around you who you care about and love. And we know it works. And it, yes, it is an inconvenience, but if if you walk through our intensive care unit or a hospital that was in the middle of this back in March and April or in a hospital now that is really in the middle of this in the Midwest and you saw the impact that this disease has on people, I think that you would understand the need to be strict about mask wearing and social distancing because every time you don't do that, you're putting yourself and other people at risk and creating a situation where people are more likely to die because even though the vast majority of, this pe of the people who get this disease are going to be fine, if much of us are going to get it, if we don't wear masks and social distance, then we're going to see unfortunate deaths because a small percentage of people who do get this disease, even with the treatments that we now have, are still going to die. And mask wearing and social distancing is our best therapy to prevent that. Holy Name was really at the center of the bullseye in the spring. When you look back on that now, do you say to yourself, oh my goodness, how did we make it through? So I'm very proud of the people here at Holy Name, and I do look back and, and say that. And I am concerned that um, it's going to be tougher the second time just because of the strain that it's going to put on our staff. But I know the people that I've worked with, I've been here for 10 years, and I know that their priority is taking care of their patients, and they're going to get through it. And that's not just the nurses and the doctors and the technicians. It's the support people. It's the people who, who get us the supplies. It's the people who help us build out the new space. Heck, it's the people who feed us, right? We're all in this together, and we all have a, a common mission, which is to to do the best we can for the people that we take care of. And I think that's how we got through it. And I think a place like Holy Name, which is not as large as some other uh, hospitals, is more of a family-type place. People choose to work here because of our culture and our size. I think that we are uh, as, as prepared as we can be for the reality of this pandemic. And, and I'm just proud of the people that I work with. Like New Jersey... New York, and specifically New York City, has seen recent spikes in many communities, and now the positivity rate, the rate of people who test positive and the population of those being tested, is hovering close to 2%. That alone uh, is not a number that would overwhelm us, but the growth is what worries me, and we cannot allow that number to keep growing. We're really going to have to double down. New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio. The recent spike in cases, both locally and nationally, is also a concern for Michael Dowling. He's president and CEO of Northwell Health. Northwell is New York's largest health care provider and the state's largest employer. Our Peter Haskell spent time with Michael Dowling this week on the topics of the uptick, vaccines, hospitalizations, and hope. We began on the topic of surges here and across the country. When you see what's going on, what do you make of this? Oh, I think it is distressing. Uh, I think it demonstrates, quite frankly, a major lack of national leadership. 
when you're inviting a war like this um, uh, as a country, and there is no part of the United States immune, as we now know for sure, uh, it does require a very focused, concentrated, realistically based, science-oriented national leadership. And unfortunately, uh, whether irrespective of your political persuasion here, it's hard to argue that that has been happening. Um, we sh national leadership should be out there talking about a consistent policy around mask wearing, social distancing, compliance with scientific guidelines. And if we had done that and had been doing it for the last number of months, my guess is that we would be in a better situation. doesn't necessarily mean it would all be solved, but I think we would be in a much better situation than we are today. Uh, New York is a bit of an example because, uh, you know, for the most part, most of New York has been complying. And we did have, um, we were the epicenter back months and months ago, but the situation today in New York is, looks very, very good. Uh, of course, we can't get complacent. We don't know whether or not something will happen uh, that makes it worse over the next number of months. But we have been complying in New York, and we've had good leadership in New York. Nationally, um, it has been a, a bit disastrous, and it's a lesson that if you're going to be dealing with a national event like this, you need consistent national leadership, as I just said, and that's not been occurring. So we see what's happening in the upper Midwest. We see that people around here, it seems, are just getting tired of this, this pandemic fatigue. Is it inevitable that we get another kind of surge? Well, I believe that we will have, um, uh, you know, that it could be different in different parts of the country, but I do believe we will have other surges. I, and, and I have no real um, empirical evidence to say, to, 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 you know, prove what I'm just going to say, but I don't think it's going to be necessarily as bad as it was back in March and in April. So I do think over the next number of months, you'll have a number of, you know, waves, surge waves, I don't. I think that they won't be as intense as they were before here in New York, but I believe that we have to be um, comfortable with accepting the fact that we're going to be have to dealing. We have to be dealing with this issue. We will be dealing with this issue until about this time next year. So when people talk about um, people getting tired and uh, fatigued, uh, I think we just got to buckle up, tighten the seat belts. And know that when you're in a pandemic like this, it doesn't come for five or six months and go away. It lasts for a year or two. And, um, you know, other people in other circumstances in other parts of the world have been dealing with more horrific situations like this for multiple years. So I think we just um, hope, hopefully, and I believe we are, resilient enough and tenacious enough and have enough grit to be able to sustain this over a long period of time. I do think it's going to get better, um, but I think that we... You know, I have a, my, part of my issue is if people talk about everybody getting fatigued, people automatically think they're getting fatigued. If we talk about it less, we won't get fatigued. Well, it's, it's the reality of the circumstance. Um, my answer is deal with it. This is, it's not going away by sitting around saying I'm tired. It's going to be around. So um, let's buckle up and deal with it. Fair point. When you say this time next year, why do you come up with a year out as opposed to six months or 18 months? Oh, I, my, my guess is that um, uh, um, 
that you know I think you're in for a, you know a 12 month period here. Um, now we get a vaccine at the beginning of next year, and uh, we have enough vaccine, and we get efficient about distributing it, and uh, people take it, which is another issue, by the way. Then I think that will ameliorate the situation quite a bit, even though there is no vaccine, as you know, that is foolproof. Um, uh, it doesn't work on everybody, and it may work on different components of the population differently. But I do think that we will be implementing uh, the vaccine in the, in the early spring. And, uh, and again, if the public, and this is key, if the public uh, complies with mask wearing and does it consistently, uh, then I think we have a much better shot at dealing with this quicker. The best treatment today. Uh, is a mask, and if everybody, you know, was, and if our national leadership was, was willing to talk about that, I, I think we would have a, a, a better and a quicker outcome here. Why is this such a political issue as opposed to a public health issue, and how do you convince people, yeah, the masks work? Well, I think the evidence is very obvious, and I think this becomes ideological. If, if you believe in science or you believe in evidence, and you were willing to accept the fact that um, masks are not things that interfere with your freedom, as some people argue. I mean, if you make that argument, why should people stop at a traffic light? Why should people not drive at the, wrong side, the opposite side of the road? This is a ridiculous argument. Uh, masks work with, with evidence of it. Uh, it's consistent. Every science, scientist tells you that it works, and um, we've proven it. Uh, so, I, I, to me, it's, it's since you know, we, it all, it's also obvious that when you don't wear a mask, it increases the uh, the, 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 the the opportunity for cross infection and social distancing, of course. And this is why people are arguing during Thanksgiving and over the holidays that people don't get together the way they were used to in the past. That's that's an inconvenience. My own family is upset about this because Thanksgiving is a big holiday. I like together, and and uh, but they, my family comes from my wife's family comes from different parts of the country, and we've decided we're not doing this this year. So we can give up Thanksgiving for one year. We can, you know, we can virtually talk about turkey if you want to do that during Thanksgiving, and uh, just deal with it. Um, uh, and if everybody wants to open up the economy. Everybody wants to get back to regular business. Well, the way you do that quickly is to comply with all of the rules that we know work. Mask wearing being one. Do it. Stop complaining about it. And, uh, and, and, uh, and just let's move on. Um, the longer you deny the inevitability, you deny the, 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 the evidence around mask wearing, the longer this is going to continue. On to the topic of vaccines. Dowling has strong feelings about keeping politics out of the equation. He believes New York will be ready to get a program up and running when the vaccine becomes available. I think the companies are doing a good job here. They've got together and they've made an, an announcement that this is going to be, they're going to comply with all, reg, all requirements to make sure that it is safe and done the proper way. So there are a whole number of steps that have to be, that have to be done to make sure that we have a valid vaccine. All of those steps have to be done. Some politicians have been talking about skipping some of the steps. None of the steps can be skipped. You have to be able to stand up with confidence that science drove the development of the vaccine and politics didn't drive it. If you're able to convince people of that, uh, 
especially given the comments of the fans, then I think uh, more people will be willing to take it. It will require in the spring, uh, before the spring, a major communication effort and um, uh, uh, to, to the public and to be convincing them that this is the right thing to do. And I know we're going to be doing that in New York. Uh, we're going to be doing it uh, in, in many of the high-risk communities, and it's going to have to be consistent, repetitive, um, so that people understand that it is the right thing to do. And healthcare workers probably will be the first group that will be, uh, be getting the vaccine, um, and uh, we're hoping that all healthcare workers understand that that's necessary to do. And if they do it, and if the leadership of the country stands up, for example, and takes the vaccine, um, then, and like just like the CEOs of healthcare organizations to take it at the beginning, it sends a level of confidence to the staff that this is okay to do. Um, but it will be a task. This will not be easy. Most of the polls right now see about 50% of the people are, un are unsure about taking it. Um, so it, it's like everything else, it's going to require an ongoing communication effort. I want to have this kid about healthcare workers being at the front of the line. Uh, what are the challenges and how, how easy or difficult is it to, in a methodical way, get everybody in the healthcare industry vaccinated? And number two, how tricky is it in terms of the volume needed to get everybody else in the state vaccinated? Well, I mean, the, 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 the governor is right now putting together here in New York, putting together a major uh, statewide vaccination policy and going through all of the operational is issues that need to be addressed uh, to make sure that we know where to store it, we know how to, uh, how to make guaranteed security, we know how to, how to transport it, identify the people who will be giving it, it also depends on the types of vaccines we're going to get. We're probably going to get different kinds of vaccines. There's one vaccine option that probably will be coming out that will require a, a, a shot and then a booster of 21 days or 30 days uh, subsequently. And there are other vaccines. There's another vaccine that will probably hit the market that requires only one shot. Uh, so you have to be pretty adaptable with how it is you're going to implement these Um and then, uh, again, for those of us in the healthcare world, going to the first part of your question, if I got it correctly, uh, is to um, uh, continually communicate and communicate and communicate with frontline staff that this is very, very important for them to do, just like we do with the flu vaccine, uh, where we have in our organization over about a 90%, over a 90% pickup on the vaccine, the flu vaccine. And I'm pretty confident that we will... Uh, over time have a, have a similar response with regard to the, uh, the, the COVID vaccine. And then the question will be for the high-risk group that would get it next, uh, people in congregate facilities like nursing homes and others, high-risk populations, um, you know, populations of color that were disproportionately affected by COVID to begin with. All of that is being worked out right now over the next couple of weeks. Um, I think we will be getting close to having an operational plan um, on how it is we can do that across New York State. And, but it has to be flexible and adaptable because the circumstances will change. And if we have the right protocols and logistics in place, uh, we will be able to do this pretty well, I believe. How much of the vaccine we get, I don't think anybody knows yet. And, of course, the CDC will issue federal guidelines with regard to this. 
um, and uh, we will have to be able to be flexible enough to accommodate the, flex the, the federal guidelines. So th this is no small task, and it will require, uh, again, compliance by the public. So much of um, what is needed here, both on the prevention side and on the treatment side, is what the public does. Public is all about prevention. If the public does the right thing, focus on prevention, like mask wearing, as I said numerous times, then I think we have a better chance of dealing with this and, and succeeding uh, over the next uh, number of months. There are a lot of unknowns here. How long is it going to take to get everybody in the state vaccinated who wants a vaccine? Yeah, I think uh, that this will, uh, you know, depending on how much of it we get, but in New York, you've got, what, 19 million people. Uh, you know, you're going to be, this is going to take, you know, six, nine months, 12 months maybe. Um because um, the, 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 my own guess is that the people around, the, the, the so-called healthy people, uh, non-health care workers, non-essential care workers, non-high risk, they will probably be the last to get it. Uh, they, um, so I know if the vaccine starts in the, the early spring, like uh, January, February, I think you're into the early summer before the typical regular so-called healthy population out in the community would get it because you have to do all of the others first. But this, this again is all guesswork at the moment. I mean, if we get, you know, it depends on the supply of the vaccine. We don't know that yet. So you're absolutely right. There are a lot of unknowns here, but we live in the world of unknowns all the time. I mean, that is not surprising. We get up in the morning with, and then you get in your car to go to work. It's an unknown. Everything is an unknown. Uh, you just got to walk through it. Um, there's no definitive, um, uh, the, 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 there's no clear, clear, definitive processes here that you can actually be guaranteed upon. Uh, um, uh, so we going to be changing on a continuous basis. But we, have, we will have the plans in place to, to accommodate it and be flexible. We did want to hear from Northwell's Michael Dowling about the current state of his hospital system. So in our organization, uh, today we have 117 COVID patients. Uh, we have been ranging from 85 to about 130 uh, each day for the past six, seven weeks. Uh, we were, uh, you know, for, for about a month, we were about 90, 95. And then we went up to 130 about a week and a half ago. It dropped down to about 105 a day. Today now we're up again to about 117. So we go up and down 15 to 20 a day. For us, in our healthcare system at Northwell, that's a, a very manageable number. It's quite small. It doesn't interfere with the normal businesses that we have coming back. Uh, it's easily manageable. Um, uh, and they, all of the hospitals in New York right now can easily manage the volume uh, that they're getting. And if the volume increases, which we expect that it probably will, we can handle it. Um, I at Northwell can handle at least 1,000 COVID patients daily without much disruption at all. It's relatively easy to handle. Remember, way back in April, at the beginning of April, we had 3,500 COVID patients in our hospitals, 3,500, and we handled it well. Today, I've got 117. So it's no time to be panicked, but it's a time to be very observant and not complacent. And if it comes back, we are ready. We have very detailed plans in place. We know how to surge, which is increased capacity. We, we, we have the supplies. We have the space. We have the staff. Uh, we have very, very detailed plans. So we know how to search up and deal with it. 
uh, and in a very effective manner. So we've learned a lot of lessons from the past couple of months, and of course we're applying those lessons now. Uh, we're better off today than we were before. We're also better off in, being, in treating it. We know an awful lot medically about the disease today, much more so than we did back in April, on late March. So the treatment methodologies are better. There's a lot of treatment trials going on in every facility. And um, uh, the ICU staff and the physicians uh, are much more equipped now than they were before. So we're in a better situation. Um, but I caution here that um, we're, you know, we're very, we, we, we have not beaten this yet. We are, we, this is not, we cannot say that we have won yet. Uh, this, we won't know that for many, 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 many months. But today we're in a pretty good place. And that's because we have great leadership. The governor has been terrific on this. The health system in New York has been terrific. Um, you know, we have, we have stood up and handled this quite well, despite the fact that we were the epicenter for quite a while. You've talked about masks, you've talked about vaccines and hospital capacity and therapeutics. In, in the quiet moments, and you think about what might lie ahead, what concerns you the most? Well, I, there, are two, there are two things, and you have to break down this whole issue into two parts. There is the medical aspects of COVID. I mean... Can we handle the virus and get that under control? I believe we will, despite what's going on in Europe and other places, but this is what we would expect over a long period of time. So another year or so, I do think that we'll get a handle on the medical side of it. Um, and then there is the issue, of course, of people that have had COVID, that have lingering health care problems, and many of them may have lingering health care problems for a long time, and we're working on that. The, the other big issue is the economic impact of the COVID crisis. Uh, that will last five to ten years. Um, the unemployment, the businesses that will not open again, uh, the businesses that will close completely, um, uh, the real estate industry, the airline industry, the restaurant industry, um, and the disproportionate effect that COVID had on minority communities. These are long, long-term issues. Uh, so if you're looking at the impact of COVID overall, uh, I think we will, we, will, we will manage over the next year or so, and I could be off by a number of months here, but uh, we, uh, we will handle the medical side of it, I think. Uh, but the economic impact of this, I think, is, what I, you know, is, all, is not to be forgotten. That's the big issue that I think will affect the economy for quite a while and affect state budgets, affect federal budgets, affect local budgets, affect household budgets. Um, unemployment affects people's health, and uh, not having a job is not a good thing for people's mental and physical health. That's the issue I think that is going to take us multiple years to, to resolve, even after the, the, the COVID virus issue, from a medical point of view, is, is taken care of. And then, of course, we have to get uh, one of the other lessons now is for every organization, not just healthcare organization, but every organization. Uh, to think about how they are going to prepare themselves for the inevitable fact that other things like this are going to happen in the future. So we shouldn't, when it's all over, uh, uh, say, okay, let's now relax, go back to where we, the way it was before, which I don't think will ever happen, and forget about what we need to prepare for the future. Every organization has to be now thinking, what are the resources I need, what are the capabilities I need, 
for the facilities I need uh, to be able to deal with a thing like this uh, when it comes again, because it will again happen. Is there anything else you want to add that we didn't talk about? I would say that the people, I would say, you know, leadership is all about, you know, promoting hope and having an optimistic attitude. We are going to beat this. This is difficult. It's not the worst thing that has happened to people in life. We're resilient enough and we have enough willpower to be able to deal with this. Yes, there is a little bit of tiredness associated with um, but I believe that um, positive attitude um, and um, uh, leaders, leaders need to inspire right now and inspire staff and inspire the public and say, yes, we're going through tough times, but we'll get out of this. We have a winning spirit. We have to have a winning attitude. And at the end of the day, we will win. Our thanks to Northwell's Michael Dowling and Holy Name Medical Center's Dr. Adam Jarrett. That's 880 In-Depth for this week. Executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and subscribe so you don't miss a week. Just search for 880 In-Depth wherever you get your podcasts. As always, stay healthy and be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 